I felt like it was a natural thing to say, okay, what do we do now that we've finished this Running on Empty series? And so what do you do now that you have a full tank? So we're going to be spending this series talking about the book of James. Book of James. Um, and I don't know, James is the brother of Jesus, which I feel like is a really hard job. Right? How many of you guys have the, the perfect sibling that growing up that you felt like, oh, they were the favorite and they never did anything wrong and they're the kid who never got spankings and you were always the one. Did anybody have that sibling? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I guess I have a church that full of people who was that sibling then. I guess that's the other option. I had that sibling. My sister growing up, it, it seemed like she never did anything wrong. Uh, I was always the one who was getting in trouble. My sister was the one who made the better grades. And, you know, it was like she's the favorite. And so I kind of felt that way. I can't imagine how James must have felt, though, when your brother is Jesus. You know, like how many times did you have to hear, can't you be more like your sibling? Can't you be more like your brother? Can't you be more like your sister? And I'm sure James was like, that's not fair. His dad is God. You know, like, that's not a fair... And so here we have James writing this book. And it's so cool the way he starts it off. Uh, I just want to touch on this real quick. He says, uh, he starts it off and he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James, the brother of Jesus, viewed Jesus as someone that he is stepping into under service. Now, how many of us would do that with that sibling that you saw as the perfect one that you were like, oh, I'm your servant? I serve you. You know, that's such a foreign concept. So I love that James takes the time to write this book and such an interesting perspective when you view it as this is written by the person, probably one of the people who knew Jesus the best. He knew Jesus for his whole life. He got to watch how Jesus lived. And so I think that's just such a cool opportunity that we have. Like I said, we're, we're, we're filling up, we're, we're full now that we finish that series running on empty. If that series, you know, took and we're all running on, on full now. Uh, so how do we live out that abundant life? What does living an abundant life look like? It looks like a life that is lived on purpose. It is a life with purpose and on purpose. This is what we're called to live as. Um, the story of Esther in the Old Testament, her father figure Mordecai tells her that she has been put into the position she's in. And he uses this phrase you've probably heard before, for such a time as this. I think that's a pretty familiar phrase. And I think that's a phrase that can be applied to our lives, is that we were put here for such a time as this. Now for Esther, it was to rescue her people. For us, it can be many different things. I want to look at the verse. Uh, this is Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I love this picture that we get here of being an arrow in a quiver. Because I, I don't know how much you know about archery. It's not a lot. You know, you pull out and you shoot. So it's not, not a whole lot that you need to know for this illustration. But... Archers don't just walk around carelessly fumbling arrows, right? That's not something they do. They're not just like pulling out, you know, like that's not how they treat their arrows. Their arrows each have a purpose. 
each have a very specific target that they were aimed, that they were made to hit. So an archer only pulls out an arrow when he has a very specific target in mind. And so he pulls out that specific arrow for that specific time to hit a specific target. The same can be said for us. You could have been born any time in history or any time in the future, and you weren't. The God who formed you in your mother's womb made you to be right here and right now. You are like that arrow that you have a very specific time and a very specific purpose. Each person in, that, in this room. I think that's really powerful if we grasp that. That you could have been born at any time, anywhere in the world. And the God of the universe picked now. The God of the universe picked here. That's powerful. That's a life with purpose. This is not an archer who's just carelessly, like I said, carelessly fumbling arrows. This is a skilled archer who has created us with a very distinct purpose. And has pulled us out of the quiver and shot us into this world for our specific time, our specific target. So that's what this series is. Now that we are living this life with purpose, we are living a fulfilled life, and we know the tools to not run on empty, now that we're full, how can we hit the target that we were made to hit? So how do we do it? Well, let's start with the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from God. For that person should not suppose. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James starts off this book kind of with a <laughs> stepping on toes of considerate joy when you face trials. That's not something many people naturally do. That when you're in a tough situation, you think, I'm thankful for this situation. It's not a very natural inclination. And so James starts off this way. Because he wants it to produce steadfast faith. Another word for steadfast is immovable. Part of us living our life on purpose is going to take immovable faith. That through these trials, we can find our faith and it will be made immovable. Uh, I don't know if you guys know much about lifting weights. I've heard about it. Um, so lifting weights... The process is that you are tearing down muscle so that when it rebuilds, it rebuilds bigger and stronger than when you tore it down. And so lifting weights, you're actually tearing down the muscle fibers, and then when they heal, they're healing stronger and bigger than before. The same is true with our faith. That we are put in trials, we are put in times of spiritual weightlifting. In situations that, though we might find ourselves weak in the middle of, 
when we come out and experience healing, we will be made stronger. We will experience that immovable faith. We have to endure it in a way that honors God. The story of Job in the Old Testament, um, it's really interesting. There's a lot to dig in here. I'm just going to give you the brief overview. Is that Satan actually comes to God and says, he's kind of talking about Job. And God says, you can do whatever you want to Job as long as you don't harm Job. It's like you can do, put him through any kind of trials, do anything you want to him. As long as you don't harm him, as long as you don't kill him, you're fine. So Satan goes, and there's this, this paragraph that is like the worst possible thing that could happen to any human. That it's his servant comes in, and he's like, I forget the order, but it's like, you know, your livestock has been killed. There's a, you know, people came and they killed all your livestock. And he's like, man. That's terrible. That servant leaves. Another servant comes in. And he's like, hey, I want to let you know. There was, they set fire to your house and you've lost everything you own. He's like, man, that's terrible. And while that servant's coming out, another, another servant's coming in. And he says, I want you to know that everyone in your family has been killed. That's a terrible, not just day, but that's a terrible like hour that this man has gone through. That everything has been taken from him. You talk about a trial. We've never faced a trial like Job faced a trial. And yet Job never once cursed God. He never once turned his back on God. He did ask God why. He did wrestle with why did this happen. But he never left. His faith kept him close to the Lord. And in the end, Job was rewarded. Job was rewarded with more stuff than he had. And his family was made larger. He had more family than he had before. He was restored past where he had started. He was made stronger through this trial. I think we have to remember that. We have to look at this story of Job and say he still had faith to endure through this trial. We have to realize we will come out stronger on the other end. And it's hard to do in the midst of a trial. That's hard for us to do is when we're in the middle of something... To remember that. That's what we have to do. We have to remember and say, not just see the effects of the trial. Not just see what it is doing to us and focus on that. But to step back and acknowledge what's going on so that we can count it as joy. Again, that just sounds so counter everything in us to count a trial as joy. We have to remember that joy is different from happiness. That happiness is dependent on what happens. But joy is a foundational root that knowing that no matter what happens, that because we have salvation in Jesus, because of what he has done for us, everything else is going to be okay. None of this is is going to matter because I know that through my joy, my joy is not found in these things. My joy is found in the Lord and that is unshakable. So when we face these trials, we can count them as joy because we know we will be made stronger. It doesn't mean you have to be happy in the trial. It doesn't mean you have to go, yeah, I'm loving this. This is great. Because again, happiness and joy are very different things. It's okay not to be happy. But it's not okay for us to lose our joy in the Lord. So how do we do that? How do we remember to look up and to say, 
I need to remember that I need to have joy in the midst of this trial. How do we step back into that? James follows it up, talking about wisdom. A few weeks ago, I told you guys that there's a proverb for every day of the month. So if you're, if you're looking for a Bible reading plan, you can just start, pick the day of the week it is. So today is the 8th. You can read Proverbs chapter 8. If you read through Proverbs, especially if you read through Proverbs a couple of times, it is impossible not to desire wisdom. That book will change how you see and view wisdom. The book of Proverbs, there's one verse that I pulled out, but there are countless verses about wisdom. This is written by Solomon, who was considered the wisest man who ever lived. That God comes to him and tells him, you can have whatever you want. And Solomon says, I want wisdom. And God says, because of this wise choice, not only will I make give you wisdom, but no one has ever been as wise as you and no one will ever be as wise as you. And I will bless you with riches and I will bless you with a kingdom and power. So Solomon writes this book and it's really written to his sons that he's like, guys, I want you to want wisdom. And he writes this verse. He says, how much better to get wisdom than gold to get understanding is to be chosen is to be. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. And that's what Proverbs 16, 16. The value of wisdom is worth more than all of the money in the world. Is what he's saying here. It's better than gold. Wisdom is to be sought over money. Wisdom is valuable. And Solomon knew that, and he passed it down through Proverbs, and James is reiterating that here, that we need to seek wisdom. Part of living our life on purpose is going to take seeking wisdom. Now, this might seem kind of um, out of the blue that James is, is talking about going through trials, and then he says, seek wisdom, but he's tying these two things together because in order to face a trial in a way that honors the Lord, we need the wisdom because we won't naturally make choices that are wise in the midst of a trial. Naturally, we make choices that are self-protecting or that get us out of the trial as quick as possible and that aren't God-honoring because we're looking after us. We're not looking after what God wants for us. We're not looking after God's will and his plan. So we must have wisdom in the midst of these trials. And I think it's really funny the way that James writes this verse that he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And I, I, it's kind of a trap verse, right? Because who's going to say, I think I'm fine, actually. You know, I think I've got enough wisdom. This is plenty. I've got enough. No, thank you. Those are the, that's the very person who should be praying and asking for wisdom. If anyone thinks I'm wise enough, that's probably a sign that you aren't. We should all be seeking wisdom. We should all be asking for wisdom. I think it's interesting the way James wrote that because there's no real way to say, oh, fine, and to get out of that. We should all ask God for wisdom is what he says. Not only should we ask, but we should ask expecting God to give it to us. I think that word expecting to give uh, brings about thoughts of entitlement, like a little kid You've ever taken your kid to a store, even the grocery store? Why do they even have toys in grocery stores? It's just to annoy the parents, I think, um, because you can't go into a grocery store without your kid seeing a toy and saying, I want that, and throwing themselves on the floor and kicking their legs on the ground, and you're like, oh my goodness. So I don't want you to think that James is meaning 
ask God expecting him to give it to you like a little kid expects to get a toy in Kroger. I'm asking, I, he's saying it to ask God expectingly like you ask someone to pass the bread at the table. Say, hey, can you pass me the bread? There's no part of you that wonders if they will pass the bread because that would be really rude if they were just like, no. no. Get it yourself or... You know, like if they just like, no, it's all mine. You know, like there's no part of you that thinks that's actually going to happen. You expect it, but not in like an entitled way. It's not like give me the bread because I deserve the bread. It's give me the bread because it's there and it's for all of us and you have enough. And, you know, there's just this expectation of, yeah, you're going to pass me the bread. That's the way that we should be asking God for wisdom. Not like an entitled kid that thinks I need to, I deserve this, but like a, you've said you'd give this to me and there's no reason you wouldn't. You have plenty and Give it freely without reproach. Like, I'd like some wisdom. And we should ask with that expectant mindset. So yeah, God, God will give me wisdom because he has plenty to give. And I think when we're in the midst of a trial, it helps to have wisdom. Wisdom to see God's will, to make the right choices, even to remain steadfast. All takes wisdom. Because if we just make decisions based on our flesh's desires, we will not be remaining steadfast. And then James brings up doubt. And doubt is this, this big concept that we have. Doubt is something that um, we all can kind of experience in different ways. And James is not addressing the, uh, the doubt that be some believers wrestle with, that occasionally you wrestle with this idea of doubt. What James is talking about when he says doubt, he's talking about doubting God's ability to provide that wisdom. That you think... I don't know if God can give me wisdom, but I'm going to just ask, I guess. But that's not the doubt that we typically see. He's not addressing that specific. He's doubting. He's talking about doubting God's abilities. That I don't think God can actually give this to me, but I'm going to ask anyway. And then he says that that man is tossed around by the wind. He's talking about the person who only believes in God when it's convenient for them. That they just kind of do whatever they want and whenever they want something from God, they tend to go this way. But whenever they want to do something themselves, they go this way. Maybe they go to a different God for something else. And that's, that's who he's talking about, is that kind of person. Not a person who wrestles with doubt occasionally. He's talking about a person who has one foot in themselves and one foot in the kingdom. Is trying to like, ah, sometimes I'll go to God, sometimes I'll go to myself. Those are the kinds of people he's talking about. Is people who are tossed around by the wind. Let's continue on in, in verse 9 of James chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because, the, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. As flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Again, this, is, this seems kind of out of left field that James starts off talking about trials, and then he talks about wisdom, and now he's talking about rich men and poor men, and then in just a second you're going to see he's going to go back into trials. But I think really this whole passage is talking about trials. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've faced financial trials in my life. I'm sure most of us in this room have. That James understood that this concept of finances is something that we would all go through. 
That I've been through seasons where I didn't know how I was going to get my next meal. And I've been through seasons when I had enough and I was trying to manage it well. But finances are kind of always on the mind. And I think that's true for a lot of us. And I think if it's not an issue for you, it's probably because your spouse handles the finances. <laughs> and you think, oh, I'm, I don't care. It's fine. Your spouse probably is the one who knows the balance, the bank account. You know, that's... I think we, James understood here that finances were always going to be a thing that we struggled with, a trial that we would always be going through. And so understanding this, he points out that the poor man can now rejoice because his value is not found in what the world views him. His value is not found in his bank account. His value is found in that God has sent his son to sacrifice himself for this poor man. So his value is that he has been died for. And the rich man can now look at his riches and be humiliated because he has spent so much time chasing after this thing that was going to fade away, that is going to perish, just like the grass and the flowers, that it is going to go away. And he has spent all of his life pursuing this. And there's no value in that. And seeking money over everything else is foolishness. Continue on in verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, when tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to death. And when sin is fully grown, sorry, Gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. James here points out the difference in a trial and in temptation. Sometimes we lump these two words together, you know, that we're being tested, and that the one outcome is, is obedience, and the other outcome is sin. And James is, is telling us that God never tempts us. God never puts us in a situation trying to get us to sin. At no point does he do that. If we look at the story of Job that we talked about earlier, he allowed the enemy to affect and afflict Job. But it was not so that Job would fall. It was so that Job would remain steadfast, so that his faith would be strengthened. God had no intention of getting Job to sin. And I think it's, James points out that if we sin, it is our own fault. And we shouldn't blame God for that. If we are tempted and we fall, it is our fault when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. I also think this is interesting here because James doesn't blame the enemy. He says you are lured and enticed by your own desire. And we frequently associate temptation with the devil. With Satan, that we say, well, Satan is doing this to me, or Satan is tempting me, or putting me in this trial, or whatever that might be. I think there's a couple things we need to be careful of. The first, we need to be careful that we don't give the enemy too much credit. We don't need to give him more power than he actually has. Satan is not omnipresent like God, God is everywhere all the time. The enemy is not. He is unipresent. I don't know if that's a word, but we'll say it is. He is unipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. 
And so if you think, if we say the words, well, the, the, the enemy is really tempting me, the enemy is attacking me, we have to remember that he can only be in one place at a time. Do we really think that he's in Oglethorpe County? Of all of the places that he could be in the world, we have to not give him too much credit. We have to not say, oh, well, that's the enemy here with me. Because he can only be at one place at one time. Don't give him more power than he has. That's what James says here, is that when we are, forth, when we are drawn into sin, we are lured and enticed by our own desires. This is a wake-up call. We have to remember that if we don't die to ourselves, if we don't put our flesh to death, that we will be enticed by ourselves. Our own desires are wicked and lead us away. He uses these words, lure and entice, like a, like a fish. You put some bait out, and it, the fish is like, oh, what's that? You move it around, it's like, oh, let me go. You know, it's like, it doesn't just start, it's not just like, whoop, whoosh, that's not how fishing works. If it did, I probably would enjoy it more. It's a lot of just waiting and enticing the fish. Same thing for us. That it's not just like, well, let me dive headfirst into this sin. It's a lured and enticing by our own evil flesh. By the curse of sin that we were born into. We can't blame God. We can't blame Satan for things that are our fault. We have to take responsibility and say, you know what? If I fall, it's because I was enticed by my own desires. So I think part of that is living on purpose. We have to realign our desires to his purpose. We have to realign our desires from those things that will lure us away and entice us into sin. We have to realign them to be with his purpose. When we follow our own desires, it leads to sin. But when we realize that we are the arrow that has a single target and a single point that we are created for. And when we align our desires to that, that is when we will live with purpose. Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, Delight in yourself, in the, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, we will find our desires aligning up to those things. We will find our desires lining up to the Lord. And not those things that lead us away into sin. Why? Because our faith has become immovable. We are now living out of wisdom. And so our desires are aligning to those things. James continues in verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. God doesn't only present us with trials. James is giving us the, the optimistic side of this, that he's not like, it's not just trials and temptation. It's not just going through these rough things. Not that God gives temptation, but he allows it. That God doesn't just give trials, but every good and perfect thing that you have in your life is from the Father above. 
We have to be a people who are thankful. Living on purpose takes us being thankful people. Because when we are thankful people, we're not focused on what we don't have. We're not focused on those things that we're missing. A lot of times that's what entices and leads us away to sin. Like the rest of what we've talked today about today, thankfulness isn't something that happens on accident. We have to do it on purpose. We frequently just stop at the goodness of gifts. We say, this food is great. This bed is great. My family is great. This car is great. Whatever it might be, we stop there. We have to remember that the giver of those gifts is who is good. That the air we're breathing right now, the bed we slept in, the only reason we have those things is because God is good and he has given them to us. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father. We have to be careful not to abuse the gifts, not to pervert them into something that God did not intend them to be, not to overindulge in the gifts. People who are thankful don't try to take more, but they savor what they have. We savor what we have and realize the cost of it. When we find ourselves thankful to the giver of gifts, we don't focus on the trials quite as much. We aren't worried about the finances we don't have when we're thankful for the finances we do have. We don't worry about how life might be cut short by illness when we're thankful for the life that we have. We're thankful for what God has already given, not what we think we deserve. To live life with purpose, we need to be thankful people. Living life on purpose and with purpose isn't easy. Immovable faith, wisdom, and realigned desires aren't just things that happen. They take work. They take effort. It's not going to accidentally happen. We are called to live our life for a specific purpose at this specific time. And it's only going to happen if we live on purpose. Let's pray.